Hello and welcome to episode two of the Salmon Trout Steelheader podcast. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Lucas Holmgren and I'm going to be reading a piece by Rod Sando from the uh, October-September issue 2019 of Salmon Trout Steelheader. And this piece is called The Columbia River Swamp. As I write this, wild salmon runs in the Columbia River are depressed to very low levels, and the future does not look good. Now how can that be? After years of major spending on salmon, why are we failing to attain recovery of these salmon runs? The answer is complicated. Complicated by many factors, both natural and human-caused, that interact to change salmon populations. We need to recognize that today's problems are often the result of decisions made in the past some a long time ago. Today's efforts to manage salmon are faced with enormous challenges that are well understood, but are difficult to solve. The current effects of climate change are changing ocean conditions on a grand scale, and we are not doing well on solutions to that problem. The pressures on salmon productivity caused by population growth and the development needed to sustain that growth will also increase as time goes on. While management needs for salmon are often viewed as barriers to economic development, too often we deal with controversy by choosing sides in the argument rather than seeking effective solutions. Solutions will demand compromise to solve the real underlying causes. If it were easy, the salmon would be in better shape, but if salmon managers are not given the permission and support to do what is necessary, the future is grim indeed. This story is quite a saga that covers nearly two centuries of salmon history, where many decisions were made, and we are now living with the results. Decisions in the past are seldom malicious and seemed like the right thing to do at the time. Yes, errors were made, but hindsight can see why. The challenge today is to do better, and we need to address the drivers of policy that still prevent the implementation of what we know should be done to improve salmon survival. Salmon managers have strong evidence of what should be done based on rapid advancements in salmon science applied to the Columbia. Salmon are a public resource, which means decisions must be made by government agencies that must serve all of society. Salmon have been losing in the political battles when hard solutions are needed. The early settlers of the Pacific Northwest found an abundance of natural resources available for the taking when they arrived. The fertile land and great climate were legendary, and the Oregon Trail immigration brought thousands of people to the region in search of a better life. The wealth of opportunity rewarded the ambitious and the hardy for decades. Vast amounts of virgin timber were harvested, gold was discovered, agriculture boomed, and the rivers were full of salmon. All of these resources quickly created wealth, and opportunities appeared around every corner. The pioneers exploited everything, and it seemed that the wealth would never run out. This generated an illusion that the dance could go on forever, and anything that stood in the way needed to be overcome, since everyone agreed that growth and expansion of logging, mining, and fishing was the right thing to do. A social mindset was formed. Large salmon canning operations started at Astoria, and huge numbers of the millions of salmon were harvested. Ingenious methods caught fish for the commercial operators, and over time, the runs started to decline. Commercial fishing in the Columbia began in the 1820s, and efforts remained limited due to the distance of markets and the lack of ability to preserve the fish. The start of salmon canning in the mid-1860s solved these problems, 
revolutionizing the region's salmon industry. Canning allowed the long-term storage of salmon so it could be transported to markets around the world. The technology led to the explosion of the commercial fishery in the 1870s. In 1875, there were 14 canneries on the Lower Columbia. The number of canneries peaked at 39 in 1883, after which it became clear the fishery was rapidly declining due to too much commercial use. At the same time, habitat losses started to reduce the productivity of the salmon runs. The riparian areas of the Columbia River and its tributaries were damaged by the settlers as they harvested the large trees that could be floated down the river. The river edges were also used for grazing, and the floodplains were level and fertile. Farms sprouted up and silt in the runoff deteriorated the spawning grounds. The salmon were put in a vicious squeeze of overharvest beyond sustainable levels and declines in reproduction. Water withdrawals for irrigation and settlement started to significantly reduce flows in the tributaries where agricultural development was growing rapidly. A practice of using water diversions for irrigation created a death trap for young salmon going downstream on their way out to the ocean. If the young fish followed the current of a diversion, they would eventually end up spread out on the land as the water flowed over the fields. This is now corrected with screens installed at the beginning of the diversion to prevent the smolts from certain death. For many years, however, these diversions were unprotected. Siltation of gravel beds used for spawning increased as road building, timber harvest, agriculture, and hydraulic mining sent millions of tons of silt down the rivers. This problem still exists and is difficult to control, a substantial effect on spawning production. The major decline of salmon raised concerns about the future populations by the 1870s, and an industry that had been largely unregulated began to be subject of administrative controls. Oregon established a fish commission, as did Washington in the 1880s. The federal government also took steps to begin an oversight process for the management of ocean issues. These efforts did little to prevent overharvest and instead applied to harvest methods such as nets, fish wheels, etc. Some season restrictions began to be considered as well as licensing, but it was too little, too late. The commercial harvest peaked in 1883 with a harvest of 42,800,000 pounds, declining to a harvest of 18,135,000 pounds in 1889. The decline of salmon available to the canning industry caused the industry to turn to hatcheries as a possible solution. The first hatchery was built on Clear Creek, a tributary of the Clackamas River in 1878, and was funded by the canning industry. More hatcheries were added as time went on, with funding from both state and federal sources. Early thinking on salmon biology held to the idea that fish returned to streams randomly. Hatchery fish were stocked in places where they were not native, and the result was an unnatural genetic dispersal. Many of the hatcheries were not very productive. The smolts would be raised, released, and very few would return. The knowledge base did improve slowly, and eventually hatchery releases were mostly confined to the river of origin. Fishing today is largely dependent on hatchery stocks, since wild populations are so badly reduced that no harvest of wild fish is allowed in most of the Columbia. Hatcheries became the go-to solution for the salmon decline. Major mitigation hatcheries were relied on to restore fish that were eliminated by dams that blocked their migration. Many dams were built without fish passage structures since it was assumed that hatcheries would replace the natural fish runs. 
This was a disaster for the wild fish and remains as the largest source of mortality as the fish traverse the river. Comments by the fish managers were universally opposed to construction without including fish ladders and spillways as the dams were built. Dams for hydropower began to appear about 1900, and some of the world's largest dams have been constructed on the Columbia. In 1927, Congress authorized the Army Corps of Engineers to conduct a feasibility study of the development of the river for multiple purposes. The first dam construction started at Bonneville in 1933 and was completed in 1937. Grand Coulee was finished in 1942 and both dams were vitally important in support of the nation's war efforts, particularly for the construction of ships and planes. Salmon were a low priority during the war years. The Bonneville Power Authority was authorized by Congress in 1937. The agency was authorized to market power, set rates, and build transmission lines. The agency is still doing those functions has been a major influence on how the river is managed for fish as well as power. Dam building took off after the end of the war. McNary was finished in 1953, the Dalles in 1957, and John Day in 1968. Four dams were built on the Snake River, Ice Harbor in 1961, Lower Monumental in 1969, Little Goose in 1970, and Lower Granite in 1975. The dam complex had a heavy impact on migrating fish. Bonneville was built without fish ladders, and the dam stopped all migration upstream until the ladders were built a few years later. This represented how little concern there was for the fate of the wild fish. This mindset persisted as other projects were built, even though the fish biologists were aggressively advising the Corps of Engineers to the danger of salmon populations to no avail. Snake River salmon populations rapidly declined after the dams were built, which raised major concerns about their future. It turned out the greatest problem was the mortality of smolts as they passed through the dam complex. The pools warmed up quickly and low flows caused the fish to get lost in their trip downstream. Passing through the dams required going through the turbines until spillways were managed for passage. The fish survival was getting worse and at the same time a financial crisis for the regional power supply showed up. This was caused by the construction of very expensive nuclear power plants that turned out to be a major mistake. The intervention of the U.S. Congress was inevitable, resulting in the passage of the Northwest Power Act. Balancing power production with the needs of the fish has always been difficult. Not until passage of the Northwest Power Act in 1980 were fish considered equal to the need for power generation. Prior to the act, mitigation efforts were mostly confined to building hatcheries and major habitat problems were left without treatment. The act established the Northwest Power Planning Council, a coordinating body made up of the four states and the Columbia watershed. The council is required to develop a power plan and also a plan for managing fish and wildlife resources affected by the dams. This has resulted in substantial expenditures, creating a fish and wildlife program that is now one of the largest recovery programs in the world. It is based on implementation of sound science and advanced technologies for monitoring and evaluation of the fish populations. Sounds good, doesn't it? In reality, the program has done a lot of good, but has not gone far enough towards managing river operations for the benefit of fish. It may have been adequate if the fish had not been declared endangered. The Endangered Species Act has been invoked for 13 unique populations of fish in the river, and their recovery is still in jeopardy. Fortunately, Snake River Fall Chinook appear to be out of the woods, but Spring Chinook, Steelhead, and Sockeye are on the edge of winking out. 
There are millions of acres of pristine habitat in the wilderness areas found in Idaho that are simply not occupied by wild fish like they once were. The solution must now emerge from our political system. Change of the status quo is a long grinding process, and so far, the hardest problems have not been solved. It apparently must get worse before it can get better. The courts have intervened on behalf of the fish, but they cannot do it all. So if you are someone who is concerned about the future of wild salmon, stay tuned to the political processes in motion and offer your support. The salmon can't vote. You need to do that on their behalf. That article written by Rod Sando, and Rod worked in national resources management for 45 years, and he lives in Oregon and loves to fish. As Rod mentioned in the article, salmon can't vote for themselves, and there are a number of groups out there, many of them vehemently opposed to each other, but whatever your belief is um, towards how this can be accomplished, I urge you to get out there and vote and support the groups that you agree with to further the cause of bringing back more fish. That is ultimately the goal. And uh, of course, development happens. We can't get away from that. It's never going to be 100% the same. But if we can make some difference and have more fish for our kids and our kids' kids and their kids, we'll have done a good thing. Thanks again for listening to the Salmon Trout Steelheader podcast. Keep an eye out for future episodes. Please share this with your friends.